I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 3rd, Election Day. This is an election update from Post Reports. So it's about 7.30 a.m., and I am back where I used to spend a lot of my teen years, which is at St. James Methodist Church in Greenville, North Carolina. That's Jordan Marie Smith, one of our producers on Post Reports. A lot of people I talk to have been shivering and quite cold because it has not broken 40 degrees yet. But it's an interesting, fun time right now. Jordan Marie spent the morning talking to voters like Bradford Woods. And what I do, I'm a Fort Lift driver, and I've been here for almost eight years. And what brings you to the polls today? Well, I wanted to vote because that's, that's my duty, and also plus that you want the right people in the right places. And you vote for who you think will treat the government right and who will treat your town right and who will treat the uh, United States right. My name is Katherine Williams and I'm 24. Um, I live in Aiden, North Carolina. Um, I want to make a difference with my vote, especially in like a small town. I feel like my vote will, I hope my vote will make a difference. And is there any specific issue that brings you out to the polls today? I'm more worried about social issues than um, I would say fiscal issues, more like LGBTQ plus issues and uh, people of color issues and female reproductive rights. Those are more my focus. Okay, my name is um, Holly Shamowitz. I am 46 years old. I am a dog certified dog trainer and groomer. I live here in Aiden, North Carolina. And what's your hope this election cycle and for the next four years? Um, my hope is that, you know, with the COVID thing going on, that uh, my number one hope is that we get some more, you know, aid financially for the people because basically we, we're living just fine right up until this happened and we're getting food from food banks and stuff right now and it's just been a struggle. I've been let go of two jobs. I just got a new job that I'm getting ready to start this week. And uh, Congratulations. Thank you. And, uh, but it, it's been hard. The Post had more than a dozen reporters stationed at polling places around the country, and we talked to quite a few of them, including Holly Bailey in Minnesota. I am in South Minneapolis outside Lindell Elementary School. Um, It's actually a few blocks south of Lake Street where a lot of the protest in the aftermath of George Floyd occurred. Um, A lot of buildings are still um, in rubble and destroyed. We came here on primary day and almost no one showed up back in August. Um, But this morning, there's about 100 people in line waiting to vote. Polls have just opened. Um, I'm actually standing across the street from the building because Minneapolis election officials, um, actually the entire state of Minnesota, has set up a 100-foot security barrier around polling sites. Um, This happened because of fear of voter intimidation and also in the in the run-up to the election there's been some reports of um, outside groups sending um, armed 
militia, armed poll watchers to keep an eye on the polls. Of the hundred or so voters waiting in line were Lizzie Lowe and Sam Latursky. Did you, why did you decide to vote in person today? Um, well, partially there's, as you know, been a lot of talk about trying to um, kind of screw with mail-in ballots. And um, wanted to make sure my vote was counted. Want to see it go in the machine. I decided to vote in person because I was worried about my vote counting. Mm -hmm. So it was really important to me to walk in there and place my ballot in the box myself. And from the swing state of Wisconsin, we also heard from reporter Kim Belware. I'm standing outside the Kenosha Moose Lodge in Kenosha, Wisconsin, about 20 minutes before the polls open. It's cold, the sun has just come up, and there are already about 60 people on one side of the building. With 10 minutes before polls open, the size of that line will double. Voter enthusiasm is clearly high, and Kenosha is an especially interesting spot in the state. In Wisconsin, which narrowly broke for Trump in 2016 by less than one percentage point, Kenosha went for Trump by less than three-tenths of a percent. So I headed to the front of the line to see who were the people that got here first, what brought them out, and I came across Bill Weldon. He was here with his wife and his two sons. The ankle doesn't work so well, so I can't walk long distance. So you're still standing for about an hour, though, to, uh, yep. to cast your vote? Yep. And that persistent. And uh, are you a pretty regular voter for most elections? Since Reagan, yeah. Since Reagan, okay. Yeah, I haven't missed an election of any kind. And what are you optimistic about? I think uh, provided things go uh, the direction I'd like it to go, um, I'm optimistic about a continued growth of economy. Um, Then there was reporter Annie Gowan in Missouri. So tell, so you told me just a second ago you're a first-time voter, yes. which I think is totally awesome. Yeah. So tell me why you decided to come out this this time. Or yeah. tell me your name and, your, yeah. and where you're from. So and stuff. I am Jana Haney, and I am from Kansas City. Uh, grew up in Raymore, mm-hmm. and um, I am a first-time voter, although I'm 32. But um, really, why I decided to vote this time around is just how divisive the last four years have felt and how, um, you know, a lot of what's gone on politically has just been kind of what feels like tearing people apart and polarizing. And so I kind of really wanted to make sure after the last four years to really make sure that my voice mattered and that even though, you know, everybody may not agree with me, that my vote does, it, it makes a difference. But as we all know, this election process started way before Election Day. I am standing outside a municipal courthouse here in Arlington, Texas. It is Saturday, October 24th at 8.50 a.m. That's Post Reports producer Lena Mahavid. Shukwe Mecca, Ilobi. Today is actually my first, my first time voter. Yes. Nice. Congratulations. Thank nice. you. Are you feeling better? It was good. It was good. Quite easy, straightforward, no complications at all. Uh, I got here like about five minutes ago. I didn't really, there was no line, so it was really quick. We don't believe in, in doing it by mail. We prefer to do it in person. We always done it like, like this, you know. Plus, to tell you the truth, we don't trust uh, mail-in voting. I do believe that mail-in voting is uh, safe and secure and that there are plenty of processes in place to 
um, prevent voter fraud, um, casting multiple ballots, stuff like that. But having the satisfaction of seeing on the screen that you voted, it's been processed, we've got it, that was very satisfying. We've also heard from people who have had a lot of trouble making sure that their vote gets counted, which in many ways seems like a theme of voting this year. 2020 is obviously one of the most hard-fought campaigns in recent American history. That's senior editor Mark Fisher. But beyond that, it's provided a crash course in federalism, in the structure of our country. And what we've learned is that states have wildly different ideas about how to run elections. They run them, uh, some with paper ballots and some with computers and some with old-fashioned election machines. And they count them in different ways with different timetables and different rules about what people can do. And so we've all learned that. And then on top of that, because of the virus, we've had all kinds of adjustments to those rules and all kinds of court battles. And the result of it is that there is no one hard and fast way to vote anymore. We have a large majority that are voting either by mail or by dropping off their ballots. And what this has created is a a very confusing system. And especially because of President Trump's attacks on mail-in voting, many Americans still view it as a controversial way to cast a ballot. Well, we're here today to vote. So in person, but with an absentee ballot because we'll be out of town. I think absentee ballots are fine. I'm not a fan of just sending out ballots to everyone because I think that's ripe for fraud. Most people have never voted by mail before. There are a few states that have been voting exclusively by mail, especially in the Pacific Northwest, for some years. But for most of the country, this is a new experience. And they're only doing it because of the virus, not wanting to be out with a whole lot of people at a polling place. And I think people are wistful about having to miss that community event of going to their polling place, seeing people that they know. Uh, And instead, it's become a more isolated, solitary kind of activity. And unfortunately, one that is fraught with some mystery and confusion. As the Postal Service has had trouble delivering the mail this fall because of enormous budget cutbacks uh, and the elimination of some processing uh, machines. Were, were, you refer- were you worried about mailing it in or was it just easy? Or? I, was, I was somewhat worried, yeah. That with, with the, the mail system would fail or that they would right. count it right? Yeah, it was just with the, the, the fact that the Postal Service has gotten so much, uh, gotten defunded so much and has gotten, um, it has so many challenges right now. You know, while I support overall the Postal Service getting stronger, I think at the point with the people who are running it and with the budgets they have, that it's not something where I trust them with my vote. Uh, This was a move by the Trump administration supposedly to cut costs, but there have been lots of pushback from the union at the Postal Service saying that, no, this is being done to slow down the processing of ballots to make it harder for people to vote by mail. So what you have as a result is many thousands of people who voted by mail and don't have the same security, the same assurance that they would if they voted in person of knowing that their vote is going to be counted. You have people going to extraordinary lengths to avoid that uncertainty. It took it took me 15 hours and 52 minutes to, to vote. So I'm Joe Lamoralia. Uh, I'm currently residing in Boston, Massachusetts with my partner, um, registered in Georgia. I think it was September 4th or September 8th, I requested my ballot. 
Um, they sent it out on September 18th and it didn't come. And I'm thinking, gosh, it's just going to be a nightmare. I called them and she said, oh yeah, uh, we sent it out. And I said, can you tell me the address you sent it out? Now they got the street correct. They got the zip code correct, but it was sent to Virginia, not Massachusetts. Uh, not sure how that happened. I've never, I've lived a lot of places. I've never lived in Virginia. Uh, so then I said, can you please send out a duplicate? And she said, sure. And uh, I said, okay, if I don't get my ballot on Tuesday, and if I was getting my ballot on Tuesday, I was federal expressing it down to a friend to drop it off. But if I don't get it on Tuesday, I I'm jumping in the car. So didn't arrive on Tuesday's mail and my anxiety level went through the roof. Um, so then I drove uh, all the way down to Savannah, went to the polling station and it was only a 52 minute wait in line. Everybody was incredibly professional. People were kind. It was awesome. It was like a great experience, but, and then I had this sense of relief, like this, this huge sigh of relief that I got it done. Now I'm like, okay, now I have to get home. <laughs> I'm Hannah Scoby. I'm originally from New York City. Uh, I currently live in Chicago, Illinois, because I go to the University of Chicago. The story starts in the beginning of September when I applied for an absentee ballot. Um, I applied uh, through the mail and I waited several weeks for that to go through because they said that they would resend a email or some type of confirmation and I never received that. So ultimately by the end of September, um, I had to apply for the absentee ballot online. I applied for that, that went through very quickly and October 2nd was when they said that my ballot was out for delivery. So I had expected it to come maybe within a week. It shouldn't take that long between New York and Chicago uh, for mail to come. But over two weeks had passed and I never received my ballot. Election day was coming really soon and I couldn't wait any longer. So ultimately, I decided to register in Illinois and vote here. My brother actually goes to the university with me and he lives, I think, like six doors down and he had absolutely no issue with his ballot. So it's a bit confusing. It's really kind of a black box in a way that good old fashioned walk up voting is not. And with all of the emotion that's caught up in this election on both sides, this was bound to be a very tense election day to begin with. But now on top of that, we've had a series of threats, uh, mainly by right-wing extremist groups, some of the self-appointed militias and uh, others who are talking about showing up at polling places with armament and, and uh, standing outside where the voters are with their guns. Uh, they say it's not to intimidate. They say it's to protect the voters or to protect law enforcement or to substitute for law enforcement. But the impact, certainly for people who are not accustomed to seeing assault weapons on the streets, can be to intimidate voters. And there are clear laws against electioneering at the polls. There are clear laws against intimidating voters. But there's also a First Amendment right to be there to express your opinion and to observe the voting process. And so uh, the folks with guns, especially in those states that have open carry laws that allow them to be there with guns, that puts sheriffs and uh, police chiefs in a very tough spot. Which law do, uh, takes precedence? Obviously, the constitutional right to assemble and, and to express your views is paramount. Uh, but does that get diminished by the presence of weapons within proximity of a polling place? In a time of, of just enormous mistrust of 
institutions, of politicians, of each other, Election Day is kind of the ultimate exercise in trust. And so there's this enormous paradox around this election that on the one hand, people are voting in some cases because they don't trust the other side and because they think the other side is evil and uh, and worse. And yet at the same time, the very act of voting is an enormous expression of trust, of trust in the system, of trust that things can get better, of trust that who our leaders are makes a difference. And so all of those statements that your vote kind of brings across, all those statements add up to a kind of an endorsement of voting, an endorsement of our system, which you wouldn't really expect given how polarized and divided Americans are right now. Mark Fisher is a senior editor for The Post. Many thanks to Jordan Murray Smith, Holly Bailey, Chris Ingram, Kim Belware, Annie Gowan, Lena Muhammad, Zoanne Murphy, and Josh Wood for contributing to this story, which was produced with the help of tips reported through ProPublica's Election Land Project. So, Amber Phillips, reporter for The Fix, when can we expect results to start rolling in? Polls in a couple states close at 6, but a big batch of states have polls closed starting at 7. Some states that really have their count together, meaning they have been able to start opening and counting mailed ballots for a while now, could have, like, unofficial early partial results pretty soon after. You know, we could see Florida and or North Carolina, two really big swing states, release some official results in that first two hours. So that's something to watch for. I mean, Florida is a state we all know is a presidential decider in many elections, maybe not so much this time around, but if Joe Biden wins Florida and if Florida announces that they can they can call that relatively early on in the night, it gets very hard for President Trump to make up that ground. And what are other states that we expect to potentially be able to call it tonight that would be game changers or would tell us something pretty significant about the state of the race? You know, it's tough to say from there. Uh, North Carolina is another where, like Florida, if the president wins that state, then okay, we we could be in for a long night. Let's wait a while for some northern states and western states to put in some results. If Joe Biden wins Florida and or North Carolina, it signals that there is just this momentum in these really, really swing states. One North Carolina strategist described to me that state as the swingiest of swing states. And so if Biden wins, that's huge. Hmm. Move out a little bit further west, so later into the night, because they're a couple hours behind East Coast, obviously. And we start to see Arizona have a chance to get its results in on election night or maybe after midnight. And that's because they, too, have been able to count ballots pretty much as they arrive. And then they, like Florida, have a hard November 3rd deadline for ballots. If your mail ballot arrives on November 4th, even though it was postmarked by November 3rd, it doesn't count. 
So Arizona is a state that Trump won by three and a half points. Democrats feel good about. They have a really strong Senate Democratic race that could actually help counterintuitively lift up Joe Biden, which would be a big deal for them. And so I think, you know, if you if you want to stay up till midnight or 1 a.m. and until Arizona is able to get in its results, you could get another signal there of where the race is going, especially if it goes for Biden. That being said, like, let me repeat, if all these go for Trump, we could be in for a much longer night. It certainly doesn't mean the race is over for Joe Biden. And that's because there's just more electoral paths for him than there are for President Trump, the way the polling is going. And of course, we've been talking for a while about the need to set expectations and to remember that there is a world in which we don't know for several days, for potentially several weeks, what the actual outcome of the race is, and that there are states where we expect that count to take a lot longer. What are the states that we should keep in mind when we're starting to see results tonight, that even if we see something early from this state, that that shouldn't dictate what we think is the final count? The big three from 2016, or what I would say, are the states to kind of avert your eyes from, if you will, from those early election (laughs) night results. That's Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And that's because these states have rules in place that do not um, allow election officials to start processing ballots until election day. And secretaries of states in Michigan and Pennsylvania have told me that could mean that, you know, election results don't come in until Friday or Saturday. So we could be waiting days on these states. So if, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a situation where in the South and the West, President Trump holds the line from 2016, and then we look to the Northern states and the Midwest, we might not know the results by Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, and we're waiting into the weekend for it. And that's why people have been talking about this idea of a red mirage, that these states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, could appear more Republican until those mail-in ballots are counted that are expected to lean more Democratic. But one hopes that everyone waits for that final count. Yeah, that's right. So, through the messaging of of the party leaders, what we've seen in polling uh, and what we're seeing in early vote results is that Democrats are much more excited to vote early. They're more inclined to vote by mail, whereas Republicans are more inclined to wait till election day and go in person. And those election day in-person results are much easier to count than mail ballots, especially in these swing states where they can't even open them or begin processing them till election day. And it just takes longer uh, to count a mail ballot you know, that creates that red mirage situation where states might release these super early preliminary results that are largely in person, largely led and driven by Republican voters. And then Democrats could kind of catch up as the votes start coming in over the rest of the couple of days. And I think it's important to note that that is why the president has been saying over the past couple of days something that is frankly uh, unconstitutional and undemocratic in saying we should stop counting all ballots after election night. Because even he knows that there's an expectation that things could shift blue if you're counting in these days after election night. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, And so it's kind of like him just setting, you know, if that were to happen, which it would not, uh, like this arbitrary deadline for, okay, the election's over now. These ballots count because because I say so. Like that's, that's essentially what that argument comes down to. That being said, the Biden campaign is worried that the president will declare victory on election night because of this red mirage phenomenon we're talking about. And they're trying to figure out how to counter that. I mean, how do you how do you fact check that? (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. And I imagine that's also a concern for Senate races as well. And I want to talk a little bit about the fight for control of the Senate. Remind me, how many seats need to flip if there is going to be a change in control of the Senate? And what states should we be watching where some of those seats could flip? So the numbers vary based on who wins the White House, and that's because the vice president can cast a tie-breaking vote. But I would say the numbers to watch for would be four. Can Democrats flip or kick out four Republican senators that are likely to lose one in Alabama? So four is, is really the magic number there. I've been talking to strategists on both sides for months and weeks now and all day today, and what they're saying is, okay, it looks like Democrats could pick up Arizona, They could pick up Colorado, so that's two. And then they have about 10 other races to play with, but they are in Republican-leaning states. North Carolina is one where Democrats could have the edge, and then I'm hearing that things could really come down to Maine. Senator Susan Collins, uh, who's been in office for more than 20 years, is definitely facing the re-election struggle of her lifetime, but but could pull out uh, with a win. And Maine has a weird thing called ranked choice voting, where they tabulate votes over a series of rounds if no one gets over 50%, and that takes a couple days. And so we could have a situation where, once again, we're waiting until Friday or Saturday to know who wins the Senate majority. You know, I think that we've made so many comparisons this year to the 2000 election and our fears that things could go wrong the same way they did back then. And I think part of those fears is that experience of watching TV on election night and worrying that states could be called too early, that what you're seeing doesn't actually reflect the total count. How nervous should we be about watching TV right now and about the races that we're seeing called on TV? Like, is there still a concern that that some of that is happening too early or that there's too much of a rush to try to predict what the final count will actually be? Hmm. Well, let me try to answer that question broadly, which is I get the sense that major news outlets, um, including on TV, are trying to figure out responsible ways to call races or not call races and say, listen, we don't have content for you. You guys are tuning in. I get the sense that they're trying to talk about that responsibly. I can certainly only speak, though, for the Washington Post, where, you know, the Washington Post has has actually a guide about how the Washington Post plans to call races. And the, and the takeaway is to be very, very careful and very cautious. And I think it's worth pointing out for some of these major news networks and also for The Post that there are actually like data analysts and a team of people who are in charge of making that decision and that it's not, you know, the news anchors that you're seeing on TV who are just calling a race when they think that it's time, that there are data scientists who are responsible for that. And I think that gives people at least a little bit of comfort. Yeah, that's right. You know, and you have news organizations, especially like the Associated Press, that are in touch with election officials Uh, at a local precinct level across the nation saying, okay, what do you guys have now? Okay, what's the the update on on the count an hour later? Okay, what's the update on a count an hour later? And a lot of news organizations use that data, feed it to their data scientists, and then decide, you know, how or whether they want to make a call. That being said, this election, it just... The way this could pan out is so different from anything we've ever known, right? In the sense that we're going to have to wait days. And I think that runs contrary to how the news runs, which is we want to be able to give you guys an answer right away. And so I see that as a potential challenge, especially for live on-air coverage. How, how do you how do you like resist that urge to want to give viewers and readers something? 
Amber Phillips is a reporter for The Fix. If you're planning to watch election returns, there's no place better to do that than at WashingtonPost.com. Our election night live show starts at 7 p.m. Eastern, with live coverage from campaign headquarters and from reporters stationed across the country, including many who you've heard on this podcast. That's all at WashingtonPost.com or on the Washington Post YouTube channel. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.